journey through the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus's comments on righteousness. As Amanda mentioned last week, uh, Jesus in this section really points out and critiques the way our righteousness can be performative. Ways in which we turn righteous acts, generous deeds into something more about ourselves than about the person we're serving. And as we go through this passage, Jesus continues that same critique, that sometimes prayer is turned into a performative spirituality, not something genuine. And so he critiques that and then gives us the most well-known prayer in all of history. Uh, As a reminder, here are three things to remember about the Sermon on the Mount. First, that it is not an isolated speech. This is to say that Jesus' life offers us an explanation of how to follow his sermon, and his sermon offers us an explanation on his life, that they are connected in an intimate way. Second, that the whole sermon is Christ describing what life in the kingdom and allegiance to him looks like, that he is beckoning us to a new type of life. And then third, obedience to the Sermon on the Mount is a practice in imagination. This is to say Jesus is speaking to first century Israelites. They're a little different than us. We have to use our creativity, our imagination, and the voice of the Spirit to really pause and ask, God, how might we follow your Sermon on the Mount in our day, in our time? It's a practice in imagination. And so Jesus is beckoning us into life in his kingdom. This particular passage has probably been prayed by millions of Christians today already. This prayer has probably been said multiple times by millions of Christians already today. It is the most well-known. It's recorded here in Matthew 6 and again in Luke 11 after his disciples ask him, teach us to pray. How do we pray And this is what Jesus gives us. Like we mentioned in our sermon on intentional formation a few weeks ago, we want to be a community of prayer. We want to be a people who are steeped in the place of prayer with God. But for most of us, if we're truly honest, prayer feels boring, like a religious duty, and there seems to be better ways to get things done. Prayer is difficult in our day for a variety of reasons. First, we live in the age of digital distractions. We have hundreds, if not thousands, of multi-billion dollar corporations spending 60 plus hours a week scheming about how to distract you and how to keep you distracted. They are thinking about how do we capture their attention. Much of the global economy is actually shifting away from a focus on material goods, like things we can hold, use, or wear, to an economy focused on human attention. It's been coined, pun intended, the attention economy. Our attention has become a finite economic resource that people want to profit from. 
Businesses are committing ungodly resources towards distracting you with advertisements, ads, streaming services. We want to stay, they want us to stay distracted. Now, this isn't a like, let's burn Silicon Valley down. But this is to say, you may pay for an iPhone, but your iPhone does not work for you. It works for someone else. And this is a call to just say, be aware of that. We have Netflix. We have Amazon Prime. We get it. Like, we are 21st century people. But we need to recognize the danger of living in an age of digital distractions. Do you remember those little moments that we used to call boredom? Like those moments before scrolling and before TikTok? Uh, do you remember sitting in a uh, dentist's office prior to having a smartphone where you like flip through a three-year-old National Geographic and you're like, well, this sucks. I think I'll pray now. <laughs> like, we no longer have those little moments of boredom that just kind of remind us like, oh, you know, I've, this is a really terrible magazine. I guess I will pray. We no longer have those because we've got our digital appendage in our, this, oh, the iPad light is on. Well, is it really? Digital distractions. What do you know? It's stuck on. Thank you. There we go. <laughs> digital distractions, all right there. Add to that, we are the wealthiest generation in human history. And if we're honest, money is a lot more efficient than prayer. If I have a need, I can pray to Amazon, and it's there two days later. God simply hasn't got on the two-day shipping bandwagon, has he? He hasn't started answering our prayers in two days promptly and offering us a return if it doesn't show up right on time. Or, you know, if I have extra cash, I can spend money on an experience that numbs any conflict, pain, or disappointment I have. And who needs to process ordinary life when I can just book a weekend getaway? We are the wealthiest generation in all of human history, and we've lost our need for prayer because we just throw money at the problem. On top of that, secularism is the very air we breathe. This isn't to say, um, you know, let's take America back for God. It's to say we all have an inner skeptic or cynic doubting that there is anyone on the other side of our prayers. Is it just me, or does sometimes prayer feel like throwing a shopping list into the air and hoping something happens? Sometimes it just feels like a void that we don't know what to do with. And if we're honest, most of us would acknowledge that prayer is a weak point in our apprenticeship to Jesus. Yet prayer is the very essence of life with God. But when we hear prayer, maybe this is just me, but when I hear prayer, I think of three older ladies in a church basement on folding chairs with these <laughs> colorful maps around them, drinking Folgers out of a styrofoam cup and praying for a missionary in Madagascar. Like that is prayer, but that is a very narrow definition of prayer. And if that's my definition of prayer, that does not fit into the rhythms of life. That doesn't fit into the day in and day out normalcy of my life with God. Dallas Willard, as we've mentioned previously, defines prayer as talking to God about the things we are working on together. 
It is a collaboration with God to accomplish the good purposes of his kingdom. Jesus interrupts this discourse on righteousness to say, when you pray, not if, not on the occasion, not when you get the chance, but when, when you pray. I believe Jesus envisions a life energized by prayer for his disciples. And it's even difficult for us to imagine life with God absent of a healthy prayer life. Can you even fathom looking at someone and saying they really know God and them having a zero to non-existent prayer life? We can't even begin to wrap our mind around it because prayer is so basic to life with God. And so Jesus will go on to explain and talk about life with God, but he begins with two misunderstandings of prayer, and then he will go on to give us one of the most profound teachings on life with God in the Lord's Prayer. So quickly, the two misunderstandings. First, prayer as a means of public adoration. He covers this in verses 5 and 6. The Israelites that Jesus is talking to are truly people of prayer. They paused at least three times a day in order to recite prayers, quote scripture, and to intercede for their day. Yet Jesus still criticizes those that schedule their day in such a manner that they happen to be in public at the hours of prayer. For those that do such, the prayers ha- their prayers have been answered, and the only thing that they receive is the publicity that they desire. So he is criticizing a performative spirituality that his followers use in order to gain clout, respectability, or leadership of some kind. He's criticizing a usage of prayer as something that becomes about ourselves and not about communing with our Father. And so then he encourages his followers to embrace the hidden life. When you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who, is in, who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus' words here are hyperbolic in the sense that he prayed in public. So Jesus has several moments where he prays in front of people. But what he's really getting at is the reality that there is a type of prayer in which you are very aware of the audience you're in front of. There is a type of spirituality in which you angle the way that you go about your spiritual life in order to gain respect, clout, or to just boost your own ego. Social media is obviously the most direct outcome of this. How many of us shared, and I also shared something about Ukraine this week, but the question we have to ask ourselves is, did I actually follow through? Or was this a performative act to be someone, to be seen as someone who's doing the right thing? Jesus then goes on to critique prayer as a means of manipulating God. In verses 7 and 8, Jesus is confronting the Gentile spirituality that attempts to manipulate the gods into action by eloquence, repetition, or flattery. The intent is to impose their desires on the deities. 
Uh, obviously, Jesus is in um, a monotheistic culture with the Israelites, but they're surrounded by Roman culture, which had pantheon of gods and was well known for its attempt to kind of manipulate Zeus or Hades or whatever God into doing what they want, either through eloquence, repetition. And it was kind of a way of twisting God's arm, the God's arm behind their back and getting them to do what they want. So in many ways, I don't know that a Christianized culture like our own has that much of a problem with that, but we do need to be aware of our intentions. We do need to be aware is if our prayer is treating more like God as a genie in a bottle than as our father, then it is a problem. So the goal of prayer is not to manipulate God into doing what you want him to do. Rather, it is to talk about what you are collaborating on together. This is a relational posture, not a transactional one. God is not Amazon Prime in the sky. He is our Father. Jesus then goes on to say, when you pray, he proceeds to give us one of the greatest gifts to the church we call the Lord's Prayer or the Our Father in other traditions. Jesus organizes this short prayer around the ethos of love of God and love of neighbor. What does he say in Matthew 22, the greatest command? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Notice the first half of the prayer is concerned with God's activity. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Then the prayer shifts to concerns for the collective well-being. Notice that these are both personal and communal matters. Give us our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This prayer is a poetic summary of all of Jesus' teachings. This prayer is introduced by our Lord saying, this is how you should pray. And so it is my conviction that the Lord's Prayer is not simply a template for prayer, but it is the prayer for those who would follow God with all their heart. It should be something stamped on our very DNA, something that is quick to come out of our mouth in moments of trial and difficulty. I had a professor in college tell us he committed one year to only praying the Lord's Prayer, to only committing to the words that Jesus gave us, that it needs to be so ingrained within us that it becomes the very bedrock of all other prayers. Our Father in heaven. Jesus then transitions and helps us understand that this is a summary of all of our teachings, and he opens up the prayer by reorienting our allegiance and our attention to our Father God and his advancing kingdom. The beginning of the Lord's Prayer is the address and the recognition of who we are praying to. The essential foundation of Jesus' life and all of his teachings is his relationship with God his loving father. Jesus describes a heavenly father that is involved, one that is attentive, and one that is delighted by you. He's talking about the dad who wants to be with you every single day, the dad who wants to eat you, the dad eat with you, not eat you. <laughs> oh, that would be an uncomfortable situation. 
He's talking about the dad who wants to eat with you, the dad who wants to spend time with you, the dad who wants to work on what you're working on. Remember how Willard defines prayer, talking to God about the things we are working on together. Now, I have a wonderful earthly father, and in third grade, we were assigned to build a a covered wagon, kind of as we were talking about the settlers moving west. And so I come home, and my dad is a craftsman through and through and a perfectionist, and so we got to work. Uh, We bought lumber. We did the whole thing. We had this beautiful model of a, a 17th century covered wagon, and so whenever I walked with that thing into school the day it was due... I had no right as a third grader to pass this off as my own work. I had absolutely no right in the world to say, this is mine. I did this myself. But yet, it's what I got to do because my dad wanted to be involved with what I was working on. That I was able to do something far beyond my expertise because my father got involved. Now, I have a wonderful earthly father, but with the decades of breakdown in um, the family units, I recognize that uh, not just a few of us probably carry some deep father wounds, carry some deep wounds on our soul just around the breakdown of fatherhood in America. And saying our father after your earthly father has molested you is no easy thing to do. To say our father after your dad abandoned you as a teenager is not an easy thing to do. How do you pray our father if that is your reality or your family of origin? I think it may take a journey of emotional and spiritual healing, and it might take a very long time. But it is worth the journey because it is at the core of Jesus' very teachings that the crux of prayer is not about how we pray, but who we are praying to. And so as we begin to learn what it is to be a people of prayer, we have to topple the false images of God, and we will begin to understand the joy of prayer. If we imagine our Father as uninterested and aloof, then we will not pray. If we imagine our Father too busy with the affairs of the universe, we will not pray. If we imagine our Father as upset and discontent with who we are, we will not pray. Again, Jesus' whole understanding of prayer is built on the understanding that our God is a loving Father with nothing but good intentions for us. Jesus is inviting us into intimacy with God the Father and encouraging us to love the company of our God, to enjoy being in his presence. The phrase, our Father, reminds us that our God is good, loving, and just, and that we all belong to his one family. Jesus then, in this prayer, moves on to a petition for God to demonstrate his glory. Hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed is not something we say often. I heard Bryce tell Andy she was looking hallowed the other day. It was a weird, weird flex, weird compliment. But we don't use the word hallowed very often. But it means something like to set apart, to sanctify, to holy, to honor, to revere. Dale Bruner rephrases the line this way. Please make your real identity known that we and others will recognize and honor you as you really are. Please sanctify your dishonored name in the world. 
This short appeal is asking God to take action on behalf of his reputation. We know that the reputation of God is at stake in our world, but this isn't about our action. This isn't about human action, but about divine action. That God will act in such a way that he and he alone receives the glory. This immediately connects to the next phrase in that both are an appeal to God to bring about his kingdom in a way that dispels all other claims to power. Jesus teaches us to pray for the reign and the rule of God to redeem every aspect of this earth. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It is an expression and an expressing of the hunger for God to restore our broken world and to take his place as its rightful king. To pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven has an impact on the one praying, meaning that our hearts and our lives begin to be reoriented to God's kingdom and it has an impact in beckoning God to make his kingdom known. For our prayers bend reality in the direction of his coming kingdom. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These petitions are, as Dale Bruner puts it, gospel aches. We ache for the full story of God to be complete. We ache for a city, a humanity, a world, and a universe all under the rule of our king. And every day that we pray this prayer, we are shown that we have little opportunities to assert God's rule in joy, in generosity, in justice, and love. Our prayers bend reality in the direction of God's coming kingdom. A slight aside that I want to address briefly. I wish I could spend a lot more time on this, and um, I may introduce a lot more questions than answers, and I'm okay with that. So if you want to talk later, we can talk. But an unfortunate byproduct of our modern skepticism and sensibilities is we simply do not believe our prayers make a difference. Most of us do not believe that anything will happen, or if we do, we offer cliches to cover ourselves in case something doesn't happen. God, you're in control, though. If this doesn't happen, you're ultimately in control. Or something like everything happens for a reason. Stop saying that. This is me being gentle. Stop saying everything happens for a reason. Because there are things that are senseless in this world. There's evil and brokenness that God, yes, can redeem, but that does not help someone in the midst of it. So stop saying everything happens for a reason. The testimony of scriptures and the teachings of Jesus indicate that our prayers impact the activity of God. That there are some things that won't happen unless we pray. There are some things that will not happen unless we pray. I do not understand the inner mechanisms of prayer, but the consistent theme in Scripture is that God is influenced by the prayers of his faithful. In Exodus 32, Moses intercedes on behalf of the people, and God relents. In Jonah, God's judgment is resolved by the repentance of the Ninevites. In Amos 7, the prophet says twice that God has changed his mind in reference to the people of Israel. Now, I do not believe this changes the character or the nature of God simply by the fact that he has changed his course of action. 
Simply, the way that he is interacting with his world is influenced by his children's appeals. A parent that collaborates with their child is not changing in their character if they allow the kid to influence how they behave. My dad was not changing his character when he let me put the wheels on the covered wagon. He wasn't changing his character or how he interacted with me by allowing me to set some of the direction of what's going on. I believe if we go, hey, you know, God is going to do what God is going to do regardless of our actions, then in everything that talks about prayer is basically God putting on a charade. So if God is going to do what God is going to do regardless of our prayers, he is just pretending to listen when he was going to do what he was going to do anyway. He has a plan. He has a trajectory for the end of the world and the culmination of his kingdom. But he is interacting and working in our world based around the prayers of his people. If he wasn't, prayer would be a charade, a charade that God was going to just do what he was going to do anyway. God is moving and bending reality towards his kingdom based on the prayers of his people. He is moving history towards his good ends. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus then transitions this prayer from our relationship with God to our concerns of every day and to our relationships with our neighbor. Our attention is drawn to loving our neighbors as ourselves. Give us this day our daily bread. We make the humble request that our daily needs would be provided for, but in using the plural our and not the singular my, our attentions are turned towards our neighbor's daily needs. Now, the meaning behind um, the term bread is a little obscure, and uh, I read lots of things on this that kind of um, made it mean a little bit more than I think it means. But I, I think the simple explanation of it is that historically, both in Jesus's day and in ours, bread is just a daily staple. Except for you gluten-free people. Maybe, it's, maybe change it to quinoa or like cauliflower or something. Give us this day our daily cauliflower. But bread is a daily staple for human beings. And it's this simple request, God, would you provide the needs that we have? Would you take care of us day in and day out? Jesus then instructs us to pray for forgiveness and to forgive. In prayer, we are reminded that we are the forgiven people. This line in particular is further commented on by Jesus in the following verses, in verses uh, 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, Christians and Protestants in particular are uncomfortable with the implications of this. For Jesus' words make forgiveness sound conditional. So you could summarize it as, we are to forgive others, and if we don't forgive others, God won't forgive us. This seems backwards, but it is exactly what God is saying. Our forgiveness of others is deeply rooted in God's forgiveness of us. Scott McKnight offers a really helpful explanation by taking this in five points. One, God has graciously forgiven us of much greater sins. 
Therefore, we are to forgive others, to extend God's grace. If we do not forgive others, we show that we are not forgiven. Forgiven people forgive others, but our forgiveness does not earn God's forgiveness. Even in Christ's prayer, the order is unmistakable, that God's forgiveness comes first and enables us to forgive others. The consequence or the demonstration of God's forgiveness of us is that we are forgiving other people. Jesus offers us this picture of a kingdom of reconciliation, a kingdom of forgiveness. And in forgiving others, we demonstrate that we have truly experienced the forgiveness of God. Now, another quick aside. This is not to say if you have not fully walked in forgiveness towards someone who has harmed you in an incredibly um, sick and messed up way that you are walking in unforgiveness with God. This is Jesus saying we are to all be moving towards the place of forgiveness. If you hold trauma and brokenness in your body, Jesus is still beckoning you towards reconciliation and forgiveness. This is not to say that a relationship may be or has to be the way it was previously. This is simply to let go of the offense, to no longer hold it against someone, to bear in mind that your relationship has forever been altered, but that you can still move towards forgiveness. If you are struggling with forgiving someone, this doesn't mean God is holding that as a carrot in front of you. He's holding his forgiveness in front of you saying, until you do that, I'm not going to forgive you. No, he's, he's inviting us into this process of forgiveness. In not forgiving, in harboring resentment and offense, we demonstrate we have a complete misunderstanding of the vastness of God's forgiveness for us. This is to say that kingdom people are forgiving people. Um, You've probably heard of Malcolm Gladwell. He's this host of this great podcast called Revisionist History, a longtime writer, journalist, and cultural commentator. And in his book, David and Goliath, he tells the story of a Mennonite woman named Wilma Dirksen, whose daughter was kidnapped, sexually abused, and brutally murdered in 1984. The day after, the day after the Dirksen's daughter was found, a press conference was held and a reporter asked, what do you think of the man who did this? And their simple response was that they hope he finds the love he's looking for and that they are working towards forgiveness. Malcolm points to this moment as the moment his faith was completely renewed. A person who was totally running away from his faith points to that moment as the moment in which faith was aflamed again in his heart. For to witness forgiveness is to experience the power of God. For to experience and to be on the receiving end of this is to experience the power of God. Finally, we request the divine assistance of God to deal with the inevitable opposition. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Like Jesus in the wilderness or the Garden of Gethsemane, a life of obedience will draw the attention and the schemes of the evil one. And so we simply rely on God to help us through these moments. I think the power of this section is that we are learning to develop a reliance upon God's guidance, lead us, 
not into temptation, and upon his protection, deliver us. Here's the good news, that Jesus is encouraging us to pray that we would be delivered from personal temptation and that we would simply avoid bad things. I don't know why that's just such an encouraging thought to me, that it is okay for me to go, God, please just protect me from the bad stuff that exists. That help me avoid the things that are damaging to me. Help me avoid the things that are damaging to my family. Help me to avoid those things. This isn't to say that all bad is going to be removed from our lives. For Jesus actually promises trials will come our way. But it is to say there is some comfort in going that God is welcoming us to go, hey, I, I just want to avoid the bad things of life. I wish I could give you a satisfying explanation for why there are times when God doesn't seem to answer this part of the prayer? Why do I fall into temptation? Why do I pray and fall into the schemes of the evil one? Why do bad things happen? Why did that person get sick? Why didn't that person survive? I wish I could offer a great explanation. But Jesus' simple advice is to continue to cling to our Father. Continue to cling to the one who only has good intentions for you. Continue to cling to the one and trust in his good character. Worship team, if you guys want to join me, you'll notice that uh, the ending that we're all familiar with, for you, yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever, is not included in either Matthew or Luke's version. This is kind of a, a simple attempt to bring the prayer to a conclusion. It's a simple attempt, you know, it's kind of a weird spot to end, you know, protect me from evil. So this is simply an addition later on in church history to just kind of round out the prayer. So in many ways, this prayer helps us to internalize the most fundamental components of Jesus's teachings while being a daily reflection on who we are called to be in light of Christ. So two spiritual practices that I would invite us into this week. If you don't already, memorize this prayer so that it is embedded on your heart and quick to your lips. Memorize this prayer. In the second century, within the first 100 to 150 years of the church, a manual was compiled on early Christian practice called the Didache. And this is what it says concerning the Lord's Prayer. Neither pray ye as the hypocrites, but as the Lord commands in his gospel. Thus we pray. He goes, goes through the prayer. Three times in the day pray ye so. Pray this three times a day, morning, noon, and night. Pray this prayer as it appears right in front of you. You don't need to come up with new um, variations of it. You don't need to adjust it. Just simply pray it as it is. Now, I know there are many of us who still say this is prayer um, is a little bit more like tradition than anything else. I played football in the Bible Belt. You know what we did? Is right before we went out on the field, we prayed the Our Father. We prayed the Lord's Prayer. And my mind was not on serving Jesus. My mind was on how can I hit that guy as hard as possible. I know that being in the Bible Belt and around ritualistic Christianity, this can feel icky, but the power of this isn't in saying a particular set of words. That's magic. That's not this. The power of this is an apprentice of Jesus pledging their allegiance to Christ, asking that God's kingdom would come to earth as it is in heaven. 
the power is not in magic words. It is in the posture of a heart. It is in the posture of one saying, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we memorize this, as this becomes the language on our lips, let us use what we've learned from this prayer and apply it to all prayer. Let's pray in a way centered on love of God and love of neighbor. We want to move from practice to pleasure. We want to move from this idea that prayer is a chore to it becomes a joy to abide with our Father. And that simply takes time and energy and effort to really get to know the heartbeat of our God. The example of Jesus is one that thrives and is transformed and in delights in spending time with our Heavenly Father. Here's what I'm not saying. That waking up and praying this tomorrow will give you the warm and fuzzies. That this at, you know, 7 a.m. on a Monday morning is not going to change the trajectory of all your life. But I am saying that day in and day out, saying our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, does something significant to our soul. That praying in such a way anchors us in the love of our Father. Now, as we... weekly podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.